everyone. WNG.org. By Marvin Alaski, Sophia Lee, Emily Bells, posted August 30th, 2018, uh, issue date September 15th, 2018. Crouching at every door. Sexual abuse is a problem in both Roman Catholic and Protestant churches. And here are three environments in which Protestants are especially vulnerable. Warning, this special report contains disturbing information about alleged ministerial abuse. We interrupt our regularly scheduled publication plan to bring you a special report on sexual abuse within Protestant churches. Why now? Last month, Pope Francis addressed rampant sexual abuse among Catholic clergy. With shame and repentance, we acknowledge as an ecclesial community that we were not where we should have been, that we did not act in a timely manner, realizing the magnitude and the gravity of the damage done to so many lives. When Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigiano accused Francis of personal involvement in the cover-up, Francis on August 26th did not immediately deny Vigiano's charge. That flare came after a Pennsylvania grand jury report showed more than 300 quote-unquote predator priests in that state had raped and molested more than 1,000 victims during a 70-year period. Given the number of destroyed documents and silent victims, the total is probably understated, and the report does not cover one-fourth of Pennsylvania dioceses, including Philadelphia's, but what it does cover is chilling enough. For example, Pittsburgh priest George Surwas for years was the subject of specific allegations by parents and victims. The Granger report says he was one among a ring of priests who passed children from one priest to another, manufactured child pornography, and quote-unquote used whips, violence, and sadism in raping their victims. From 1997 to 1995, survivors who allegedly knew of Sir Wass's perversions moved him from parish to parish. He finally moved to Havana and was murdered in his apartment in 2001. Stories like that display a Roman Catholic problem, right? Look at centralized Catholicism's opportunity to shuffle priests from one parish to another. Few questions asked. Look at the Catholic ban on priestly marriage and the pressure that creates. Look at homosexuality as inclusive. Let me make a clear distinction. Homosexuality is innately who a person is. And it's consensual. Rape is never consensual. So rape and homosexuality are never the same thing. But evangelicals should recognize that clerical sex abuse is widespread, and some evangelical and fundamentalist churches do cover up problems and pass them on to others. Although the decentralized nature of Protestantism makes statistics very hard to find, 
He particularly found opportunities for abuse and cover-ups in three kinds of situations. One, some congregations have dominating pastors with unchecked authority. Two, evangelical culture has a conference and lecture circuit with celebrities and quasi-celebrities who come to cities for weekend workshops and one-night lectures that provide opportunities to sin and go, leaving behind casualties. Three, megachurch leaders face the ordinary temptation across an extraordinary pressure to cover up problems, knowing that a sniff of scandal will summon packs of critical reporters. World over the years has paid attention to such misconduct. For example, clergy sexual abuse, the Protestant problem, and much Dogwood cover story named names in several churches. We've also seen problems beyond the three problem areas noted above. The cover headline on a September 2010 issue of World read, Uncovering a Boarding School Sex Abuse Scandal. But we've never in one issue looked at all three of these major opportunities for sin. And I must go, and I have to say this is my responsibility. Sex abuse is not just a sin, it's a crime. Crime, 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 crime. We've also not, we're also not saying these problems are new. In 1984, Fuller Seminary survey of 1,200 ministers showed one in five theologically conservative pastors admitted to some sexual contact with a church member outside of marriage. Now there's a difference between consensual sexual contact and sex abuse. One is not a crime, the other is a crime. And remember, sex abuse is not just sin. It's a crime, 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 crime. More than two-fifths of quote-unquote moderate pastors and half of quote-unquote liberal ones acknowledged the same. A 1993 survey showed 6% of Southern Baptist pastors acknowledging sexual contact outside of marriage with someone in the congregation. The turn of the millennium did not bring improvement. In 2002, Roy Woodroff, executive director of the 3,000-member American Association of Pastoral Counselors, estimated 15% of pastors either have violated or are violating sexual ethical boundaries. Churches that financially protect themselves against losses by taking out umbrella policies covering abuse accusations must let insurers know about charges. So here's another statistic. In 2003, the three largest insurers of Protestant churches and nonprofits in the United States revealed they received about 260 reports of child sex abuse each year. So why this special report now? Enough is enough. We do not know how large the problem is in the Protestant world, nor how rates are ATS of abuse compared to those of Catholicism, but such comparisons in one sense are beside the point. Sin and crime are crouching at all our doors and is no respecter of denominational distinctions. We do not know how large the problem is in the Protestant world, nor how rates are, are ATS, I'm reading this again, of abuse compared to those of Catholicism, but such comparisons in one sense are beside the point. Sin and crime are crouching at all our doors and is no respecter of denominational distinctions. Our special section presents well-documented examples of reported and alleged offenses by pastors with complete authority, conference speakers, and megachurch leaders. We are reporters, not judges and jurors, so we take seriously the word quote-unquote alleged. Stories of suffering are not proof, but stories are helpful 
and showing how some sexual exploiters work. Wait, let me stop. The majority of the stories of suffering when it comes to sexual abuse are proof. The false reports are 2% to 8%. So I need to correct their writing. But stories are helpful in knowing and showing how some sexual exploiters work. And knowledge can help us establish protocols and stick within this opportunity for abuse decreases. We should understand that no system can shut out sin and crime, but we can keep praying and protecting. What James Madison, trained by evangelical pastor John Witherspoon, said about civil government also applies to church government. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. Who shall govern our church governors? Part one, pastors with complete authority. Almost every kid at Faith Baptist Church, FBC, in Wildemar, California, 75 miles southeast of Los Angeles, saw Malo, quote-unquote, Victor Montero, as a cool youth pastor. He knew how to have fun. He jumped into the waves with the kids at the beach, pulled pranks, and joined all the games. Former youth group members said he could also be handsy. He would slap the girls' backsides, wrestle them to the ground, invite them to cling on to him while he rode a jet ski or dirt bike. One time he dropped a live lizard down April Avila's shirt laughing, watching she squirmed about trying to fish the wiggling reptile out from her bra without exposing herself. Today, Avila is 32 and says she was that Montero was crossing boundaries. Two decades ago, nobody said anything out loud. These pastors were married with children. When April and other girls felt uncomfortable, they laughed at all, thinking if what he did was wrong, surely someone would stop him. Right? Yet when a few adult members saw Montero fooling around with the girls, they castigated the girls for acting, quote-unquote, too friendly with the man of God. Avila said no one ever confronted Montero's behaviors. It was always the girls' fault. By the time Montero's interaction with April allegedly progressed beyond butt slaps, and showed her caresses into more sexual acts. She knew what he was doing was wrong. She's a deacon's daughter whose life had revolved around FBC, an independent fundamentalist Baptist church ever since she was born. She grew up in FBC's nursery, attended an FBC-affiliated private school, and spent all her social activities with the church. She watched at a youth group meeting as Montero passed around what started out as a pristine white rose. Soon, the ivory petals were no longer lovely. Montero held up that bruised rose. Look at this. This is what happens when you don't keep yourself pure. Will anyone want this flower? That haunting image of the drooping, soiled white rose was one reason April kept silent for years about Montero. She says he sexually groomed and abused her for four years, starting when she was 14. She confusedly saw him as a man of God who told her how much she turned him on, but with a snarl, as she recalls, no male will ever want you. When Montero preached about purity and chastity, she always blamed herself. She was wicked and dirty. She hid her pain and confusion and counted the days till she could escape to college. Other teenagers allegedly replaced April as objects of Montero's attention. One, Rachel Peach, was 15, 2007. Montero, she says, began texting explicit messages to her. 
She says that soon progress to sexual abuse and punishment with her blame for his behavior. It was always, you did that. You asked for that, Peach said. In, in, in 2013, the ex-boyfriend, another young woman, told FC Pastor Bruce Goddard that his ex-girlfriend had an inappropriate relationship with Montero. Goddard quickly announced to church that Montero, after 18 years, FBC, after 18 years as FBC's youth pastor, needed a break and a new challenge. So Montero would help to plant a new church nearby with a young pastor. Rachel Peach was in church when Goddard sent Montero off with praise and began to pray. She walked out and never came back. This year, as Avila and Peach heard each other's stories and heard more stories, they realized that Montero could be continuing his practice with other girls. Practice meaning sexual grooming, sexual abuse. Could, would be doing these things with other girls, two other girls. Avila called the police on July 27, 2018. The Riverside County Sheriff's Department arrested Montero, now 45, and charged him on seven felony counts of sexual crimes against minors from 1990. Nine to 2014. On August 16th, he pleaded not guilty to all seven. His defense attorney, David Grande, told me Montero has no comments at this time. Robin Flores of the Sheriff's Department told me Montero remains in custody on an $80,000 bail. Peach, now 26, also filed a lawsuit against FBC for negligence, claimed that the church knew about other improper relationships between its youth pastors and minors, yet did not report them to authorities. Kathleen Durbin, now 43, and Montero's sister in law, says an earlier FBC youth pastor. Laverne Paul Fox did to her in 1990 when Montero allegedly did to Avila and Peach. Durbin says she eventually told Goodhart, who quickly worked out to move Fox to another independent Fundamentalist Baptist church in Indiana. Fox now responds to World Inquiries. Goodhart did not respond to my three requests for interviews. Pat Cook, a member of Montero's youth group at FBC alongside Villa and Peach, is now the pastor of Nenefi Baptist Church, IFB Church, to which Goodhart sent Montero. Cook says, Goodhart gave no reason. My understanding is 18 years in one place just looking for a change in scenery. Cook said Goodhart at a service and then told him the whole scenario is pretty terrible. Cook says Goodhart was broke. He began to cry. He said, I can't believe that Victor did this. I had no idea. FBC isn't the only at, at IFB church with such scandals. In May, Cameron Giovanelli resigned from his position as president of Golden State Baptist Church and IFB College after a woman accused him on Facebook of sexually abusing her when she was a 16-year-old attending Calvary Baptist Church and IFB Church that Giovanelli once pastored. That woman, Sarah Jackson, later pressed charges when she realized some IFB pastors might not take her claims seriously. But the current pastor of Calvary, Stacy Schiff, left did and investigated and investigated. Schiff left said he found evidence that made Jackson's claims quote unquote credible. He showed me screenshots of text messages and Facebook messages Gia Vanelli appeared to have sent to Jackson and another college age girl on separate occasions. These messages were not incriminating, but suggested a friendliness beyond that of a middle-aged pastor and a young woman. Another woman, Donna Hudson, told me she had exchanged explicit text messages and had oral sex with Gia Vanelli while he was her pastor and marriage counselor at Calvary. She said Gia Vanelli had told her to take their affair, quote, quote, to our graves. Soon after Jackson's public accusation, North Valley Baptist Church and IFB Megachurch that operates Gia Vanelli's college released a statement saying it had received allegations of inappropriate conduct and had conducted a thorough and honest investigation. 
until Gina Finale resigned. Schiff left doubts that IVBC did an investigation. She says the leaders had not yet contacted any victims when they released that statement. NVBC, uh, that NVBC did an investigation, was about the Baptist Church. NVBC pastor Jack Tripper told me on a brief phone call that he's not interested in talking to a reporter. When Schiff left, went on YouTube to criticize his denomination's repeated cover-ups and abuse, some fellow IFB past wrote blog posts attacking. We've heard a culture where victims cannot even feel comfortable speaking out, Shibla said. It's almost like going against the mafia. Jim Finale is still active in ministry in Florida and is currently teaching the book of James on a new Bible podcast. He did not respond to my repeated request for an interview. The IFB movement has a church culture unusual in the 21st century. Drinking, dancing, and skirts above the near taboo. But in other ways, it's similar to other denominations where each church is independent. And many long-term pastors wield tremendous power unchecked by other church offices. Many such churches have boards of deacons versus pastors, essentially point them and may also influence their livelihoods. Sins and crimes among leaders can readily be covered up. So the elite said that. Part two, Christian conference speakers. For years, Brenda Wilby would ripple through the writers of magazines whenever she was at the doctor's office. She repeatedly saw his name on advertisements for Christian writers' conferences. Dennis E. Hensley, a professor in Taylor University's professional writing program, and the award-winning Christian author of more than five dozens in, of more than five dozen books, including The Power of Positive Productivity, Writing for a Profit, How to Motivate Yourself and Others, How to Manage Your Time, and How to Manage Your Money. Each time Willoughby saw his name, she worried. These writers' conferences attracted mostly young women eager for recognition and help in getting a foot into the publishing world. In Willoughby's eyes, they were like fresh meat for someone like Hensley. This is back in 1983, the year she says, Hensley sexually assaulted her writers' conference at Seattle Pacific University. The writers' conference world is a niche, female-dominated circle women talk for years. Several women warned others about Hensley. They said Hensley can't keep his hands to himself that he corners and lunges at women to kiss or grope them. These stories date back more than 30 years, but they were scattered and isolated. There's no one gathering these accounts to cooperate them. So conference directors continued inviting Hensley to their events until it all came to a head on July 12, 2018, when Taylor University released a statement saying Hensley had resigned amid an investigation to some quote-unquote significant credible allegation of serious misconduct against him. Will be and other women who spoke with Taylor officials told me they they're relieved Hensley's no longer working at the university, and they're glad many writers' conferences have announced they'll no longer invite him. They also said he should and could have been stopped years ago. They said Hensley, for more than three decades, got away with bracing, inappropriate, and sometimes abusive behavior. Will be was a freshly divorced mother working on her second album when she first met Hensley at a writers' conference in Seattle in 1983. She had volunteered to pick up editors at the airport. Hensley was one of them. After she dropped him off in his assigned apartment, Hensley invited her in to continue the conversation about publishing. Will be accepted off. Will be accepted. Okay. After she dropped him off at his assigned apartment, Hensley invited her in to continue their conversation about publishing. Will be accepted. After all, she had time to kill, and he was a success. And he was a successful writer. Here's Willoughby's account. Hensley turned down my repeated request for an interview. Hensley sprawled on the sofa, boasted about his accomplishments, and offered to help her become a best-selling author if she slept with him. 
but she declined and tried to leave. He pinned her against the wall, began kissing her. She managed to push him away and dashed out. She jumped into her car, was about to insert her car keys into ignition when Hensley climbed to the passenger seat next to her. Hensley grabbed her neck, Hensley grabbed her neck and tried to kiss her again. She cringed, twisted away, pounded the horn. Hensley left saying, it's your fault you're wearing that pretty white dress. Move more from Wilby, she second-guessed herself the next several days, thinking maybe Hensley was right and it was her fault. He didn't rape her, she was fine now, and maybe she should just get over it. The thought of driving Hensley back to the airport alone terrified her, so she told the conference director and assistant director what Hensley had done. They said several women had complained about Hensley, but their concerns were not as serious as hers. The conference director later told Wilby he had confronted Hensley, who said Wilby came on to him first and was now retaliating as a quote-unquote scorned woman. Hensley threatened, the, Hensley threatened the director with a lawsuit, similarly threatened Wilby for a year. Again, this is all from Wilby. The conference director is dead, but we cannot find the assistant director. Wilby avoided Christian Brothers Conference years after that, but whenever Hensley's name popped up among certain women in the publishing world, it was like, oh yeah, you too? I became very aware that this industry knew about him and didn't do anything about it. Mary Lowe Davison Redding, a retired editor of the Upper Room Magazine, says she warned conference directors about Hensley for many years. Here's her account. In the early 1990s at the Blue Ridge Christian Writers Conference at Eastern Carolina State University, Hensley had tried to slip his hands up to her breast while she was in the dormitory hall, stopping only when someone walked in on them. When Redding later told a friend what happened, the friend rolled her eyes and replied, oh, is he still doing that? He was supposed to stop. More from Redding, people knew his behavior and he was still being invited to conferences. She decided to warn people about him. When she saw his name on a conferencing brochure, she called the director to tell them about her experience with him. No director she warned ever dis ever disinvited him. They all wrongly said to me they want their conference to be success that people are coming because he's going to be there. One woman who attended a writer's conference in Texas in 2011 had an experience that eventually led to Hensley's professional downfall. I agreed not to give her name to protect her privacy, but here is her account. She was attending her first Christian conferences and was upset because one attendee had made fun of her writing. Hensley suggested going to a room to pray. They entered a dark, empty room. Hensley shut the door and she extended her hands to his, thinking they were going to pray. Hensley grabbed her hands and shoved her against the wall, kissing her neck, reached his hand down her skirt and grabbed her breast. She broke free and ran out. Last year, the woman told her story to Eva Mary Everson, director of the Florida Christian Writers Conference. Everson said she believed her, but I, did, but I didn't know what to do with it until this May when she heard another report of the Hensley incident. She put out the word that she was collecting stories about Hensley and received 13 emailed statements along with seven more text messages or phone calls. I read those messages. Those were women. Everson didn't know. They charged Hensley with sexually aggressive acts accompanied by similar wordings. You don't understand. My wife has lupus, or I just need a woman, it's been so long. He also tried to size for me to think this would be our little secret, or I could make or break your career. Everson sent those accounts to Taylor University, which investigated this. That led to Hensley's resignation. Taylor's spokesperson, Jim Garinger, said the only sexual incident involving Hensley that the university physically had in its files came in 2014 at its Fort Wayne campus, now closed. A student told Taylor, Taylor officials that Hensley had kissed her and Hensley denied it. Garinger says the administration was not 
able to find sufficient cooperation with the allegation. Taylor administrators forbade Hensley from any further contact with that student and warned him not to interact with students in any way that could remotely suggest impropriety. Geringer said Hensley's record was too marginal for disciplinary incidents and either involved Taylor students or harassment or unwanted advances. The woman involved in the Fort Wayne incident was Rachel Custer. She said she entered Taylor's writing program because of Hensley's long list of accomplishments. She was, she was excited to have him as her advisor. One day at 1 or 2 a.m., she was walking home from a pool hall when someone attacked and raped her. She reported that rape to the police and asked for a week off from work, but decided to keep her first advisor appointment with Hensley. It hadn't been easy to schedule with him. That afternoon, she sat before Hensley. She was so physically distraught that Hensley asked if something was wrong. Custer broke down into tears and told him what happened. I thought I was completely safe with him, Custer told me. To me, he was an extension of the clergy. He was a good Christian man with a good reputation. Here's Custer's account. Hensley leaned forward and grabbed her hands. Then they decided to reschedule the meeting. Hensley hugged her. As Custer continued weeping, Hensley took off her glasses and his, kissed her tears, and then kissed her on the mouth. Custer pushed away and asked, Don't you have a wife? Hensley replied, Yes. She has lupus and is in a great deal of pain. I haven't had a woman. I haven't held a woman in a long time, so maybe we can support each other. He leaned in to kiss her again. Custer jumped back and stuttered, I have to go. Hensley said, this could be a little secret. Custer said she ran out of the room and called her father from the minivan. He told her to go back to the campus and report her to school administrators. A week later, Custer and her mother had a second meeting with the dean of students, Randall Dodge, and three other Taylor officials. Dodge told me that he and the officials followed established Taylor University procedures. They interviewed all individuals involved in the accusations, visited Hensley's office where Custer said the incident happened and tried to find potential witnesses. The investigation resulted in quote-unquote conflicting descriptions as to what actually took place and Taylor placed a record into Hensley's file. Custer was not satisfied. She wanted Hensley to be moved from a position of authority over young women. She felt intimidated. At no point did I feel like anyone was on my side or even on the side of righteousness. She reported the incident to the police, but they told her Hensley had not committed the crime. Custer dropped out of Taylor, went to therapy, tried to forget about Hensley. She had no idea that many other women had similar tales about him. Again, we like to have Hensley's account, but he has not responded to my repeated interview request. He did tell Inside Higher End that he embraced Custer, but did not kiss her. She was totally in shock. She doesn't remember the situation the way it was. Hensley, now seven, he told a local newspaper reporter that allegations against him were a ripple of the Me Too movement and he had decided to just take the high ground and retire and just call it quits and let this thing die and it's die its own death. But Custer Report is just one among many. Some of the email recollections of Everson's collection are angry, others are mournful, Everson says. I don't want to forget that Jesus is weeping just as hard for Dennis Hensley's blackened soul. I grieve for his soul, Sophie Lee said. Part three, megachurch news. The scandal breaks out at a small local congregation. A couple of local or niche publications might cover it, but the New York Times probably wouldn't even give it a Twitter blog. Not so when the subject in question is a megachurch like Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois, one of the largest and most influential evangelical congregations in the nation. When the stench of a sex scandal emanates from a celebrity pastor of such an institution, the entire tragedy plays out on a national stage and the church loses control of its narrative to the mainstream media. 
of an allegation of sexual misconduct or sexual crimes arising against their pastors, mega church leaders may feel pressure to handle them as quietly as possible or choose to believe the safer narrative. They do that by internally handling a sexual abuse case by themselves, even when they're not qualified to do so, or by turning first to a lawyer whose aim is to protect the client, not the victim. That's what happened at Willow Creek, where what would have been a terrible scandal turned into a bigger and sadder one on April 10th, 2018. Founding pastor Bill Hybels announced early retirement after the Chicago Tribune published accounts from several women who accused him of sexual misconduct and harassment. The Tribune and other and the Tribune and other national newspapers, such as the New York Times, wrote that Willow Creek's elders had conducted an internal investigation and commissioned an outside lawyer to look into these allegations. Both investigations cleared the founding pastor. High Bell still denies any wrongdoing. The day he stepped down and told the church, I too often place myself in situations that would have been far wiser to avoid. Some church members groaned in response and cried, No. Later in August, one woman told the Times, High Bills had repeatedly fond of her, forced her to watch porn with him, and participated in oral sex with her. High Bills denied the crime. Elite pastor and the entire board of elders announced their resignation soon after the onslaught of media coverage, admitting that they had mishandled these serious allegations by not believing the victims. President of Willow Creek Association, Tom D. Bryce, began its annual Global Leadership Summit in August with a confession. There's no map for the journey that we've been on. We've had missteps, mistakes, slip-ups, blunders. We're sorry for the places where we could have and should have done better. Willow Creek recently started a new independent investigation into the allegations. Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Presbyterian Church in America in New York City is another influential church with thousands of members and a family of successful ministries such as church planning, city-to-city CTCs, and poverty fighting hope for New York. Earlier this year, facing an accusation against against the CTC leader, as he said, she said, case different from the multiple allegations from multiple women against high bells. Redeemer CTC tried to handle the scandal internally, but months later, the news came out. This sad start began in 2001. Jen Williams, a new Christian, was a senior in college. David came 27, 28, and unmarried, had founded the Princeton Campus Ministry, had founded the Princeton campus ministry Manus seven years earlier. He became Manus executive director with Manus 2001 listening to message staff work according to a screenshot of the 2001 page from Manus website and he was leading a quote unquote large group worship meeting on Saturday nights. Williams said she quote unquote trusted him as a spiritual leader but accuses him of sexually assaulting her one evening, touching her all over her body including under her clothes and lying on top of her while tightly pressed against her. Kim vociferously denies this, said they only had a momentary consensual physical encounter when he thought she was indicating interest in him. He acknowledges touching her chest over her clothes, he said in his statement. At no point did she express any verbal or nonverbal discomfort or refusal, nor did she move away or ask me to stop. Such encounters followed by differing interpretations of what happened occur thousands of times via Prince and other colleges. But the question is whether Kim was abusing his position as a spiritual authority, whether solely based on what he admitted to the encounter was King Central. 
This question has spiritual legal dimensions. Man and corporate Dallas Five has had an annual trend since 2007 that includes a prohibition of romantic relationships between staff and students. Legally, several states in New Jersey is not one of them has laws that say sexual contact from someone's clergy or spiritual advisor is inherently not consensual. They define potentially culpable individuals differently. Texas law says clergy. Mrs. Law says clergy who are given quote unquote spiritual advice and recovery at the time of an incident. Kim was not ordained in PC at the time, but consent in these situations was an area of heated debate. Williams and Kim remained in friendly communication for several years after the incident, according to emails Kim posted. He insists, I have never sexually assaulted or abused anyone. I handled the situation appropriately. Um, My family and I have have been absolutely devastated by these egregious accusations, misleading communications, and the process. We've been through with an organization that we must deeply believe in. He wrote in a public statement. Both Kim and Williams declined to answer questions for this article. Kim is now author of 11 years of experience as a leader at Redeemer. He was the director of CTC's Center for Faith and Work until June. Williams initially planned to work through the Metro New York Presbytery, which Redeemer is a member, but then stopped that process, which he said would involve quote, unquote, a group of all male Presbytery members who have no experience or training in investigating sexual abuse allegations. She contacted Redeemer Human Resources HR. Redeemer and CDC separate entities, but in the same family ministries, conducted an internal investigation. According to several sources, when Williams contacted Redeemer, HR had been working on revamping its policy on handling sexual misconduct accusations against staff members. CTC placed Kim on leave in June after a unanimous agreement from the CTC board that includes Redeemer elders and Redeemer founding pastor Tim Keller dismissed him without public explanation. Kim said he did not get a fair hearing. He said CTC staff only talked to him once about the incident, never shared the specific allegations against him, and he never had the opportunity to give full, a, a full explanation of his conduct. Kim said he was presented with a separate a separation agreement that included a one-year non-complete clause prohibiting him from ministry and faith and work. InterVarsity, which had listed Kim as a future speaker at an event for Christian business in February, scrubbed mention of him from its website. Williams was also unhappy with CTC's internal investigation. She and Kim both said they wanted an independent investigation. CTC said in endeavor on two occasions to hire qualified, respected investigators to lead an independent investigation, both of whom Ms. Williams declined to accept. Um, all of this was still happening privately. On July 25th, Williams put up a Facebook post stating her accusation both about Kim and about Redeemer's handling of the investigation. Williams wrote in a letter post that Kim could have behaved inappropriately towards multiple times like graduating move. David targeted, groomed, assaulted, abused, gaslighted, and silenced me. Kim denies this. Realizing that the story is becoming public, Redeemer passed CTC CEO Steve Shacklefold sent a joint email to congregants and those in the ministries early in August. The letter began by saying that the pastors and CTC, and CTC staff had quote sought to maintain confidentiality in this manner on behalf of all parties with quote-unquote recent developments pushed him to speak. The letter said Kemp had admitted to inappropriately crossing boundaries and quotations with the student while in campus ministry and that Redeemer had quote-unquote additional third-party information cooperating that. The letter 
emphasized that it was the first only accusation of an improper sexual behavior Redeemer had heard against Kim is that the organization had launched an independent investigation to see if there were any other instances during his 11 years in Redeemer. After the letter went out to Redeemer circles, Amelie Watkins, longtime assistant director at Center for Faith and Work, resigned, saying in an email to CFW circles that the course of action taken over the past several weeks, although determined by well-intentioned leaders operating in the face of a difficult situation, do not comport with our theology or our values as an organization. CDC did not respond to my CTC did not respond to my question about the HR process. Redeemer officials responded only to seven yes or no ones. Few organizations have acknowledged behavioral reasons for dismissal as CTC and Redeemer did in their letter to conference for fear of litigation. Lawyers typically instruct organizations to say only when employment began and ended. Rachel Den Hollander, a lawyer and Christian, was the first publicly to accuse the USA gymnastics doctor Larry Nasa of sexual abuse, educates churches about abuse accusations. She says, in numerous cases, protocol internal communication have been poor. Communication to congregations have been poor. She advises churches to have a written policy for accusations of sexual misconduct that requires notifying the congregation, then immediately commissioning a third-party investigation. She said, openness helps all parties protect the accused from an unfair dismissal or quote-unquote un overzealous discipline and encourages other potential victims to come forward. With accusations from many years ago, Den Hollander said the issue is not simply the details of what happened, but how the accused responds. She said Kim at the time may not have recognized his position of authority as part of her campus ministry. I should acknowledge that now. She noted the danger of church leaders responding to reports of abuse using their authority in an unbiblical way that recommends independent investigations. It's very difficult to see clearly when it's your own community. Dean Holler says a church in Lexington, Kentucky, Tate's Creek Presbyterian offers a model of how to respond to abuse allegations, to abuse accusations. Tate Creek's a BCA church with about 1,250 members learned recently of abuse from a long time from a former long-time pastor, Brad Waller, who served at the church until 2006. A college student had a reported an uncomfortable experience with Waller to his campus minister. He then reported to the Savannah Presbytery overseeing a church where Waller was a pastor of Grace Church of the Island. The Presbytery investigated Waller confessed to the Presbytery to, quote, unquote, the sin of abuse of authority, saying that he had sexual gratification from rubbing the feet of men and boys when he was counseling them. The Presbytery removed him from all of us and sent his confession to law enforcement. Even though Waller had been gone for 12 years, Tate's Creek immediately had a meeting of elders hiring an attorney to go through the process and email this congregation about what happened. They held a congregational meeting, and in the course of this, 10 people came forward with their own stories. Evidence began to emerge that the abuse was, went past foot rubbing, according to Tate's Creek leaders, though Waller had denied any physical abuse beyond foot rubbing his confession to the Presbytery. World's attempts to reach Waller were not successful. Tate Creek's elders unanimously voted to begin an independent investigation and to report findings to the police. Senior Pastor Robert Cunningham released an extensive public statement answering th three major questions. Is this really sexual abuse? Um, yes, and the pastor explained why in detail. Was anyone in leadership aware that this was taking place? Not that he knew, but the church would repent publicly that the outside investigation revealed that. What steps are we taking in response? Cunningham detailed an investigation process involving the well-known organization Grace, godly response to abuse in the Christian environment. 
if there's going to be a predator in that church, they're going to leave Tate's Creek, said Den Hollander. No predator is going to stay in a church like that because they know that they'll be caught. By that same token, a survivor victim would be able to come forward to leadership like that because they handled it right. When I contacted Cunningham to talk more about their straightforward approach, he consulted other church leaders and reported back that they would stick to their policy of not talking further until the independent investigation was complete. The last thing we want to do is, quote unquote, pat ourselves on the back and the investigation was that we had much to confess, he wrote. He promised, quote unquote, transparency when the investigation is over. Cunningham asked his congregation to, quote unquote, resist the temptation to be concerned about the reputation of the church. I am determined that we prioritize righteousness over reputation. And above all, remember that our God is faithful to bring beauty from ashes, redeeming what sin has laid waste, and believe bells with reporting from Sophia Lee. Conclusion. The few cases mentioned in the story should highlight the fact that sexual abuse is not just a Catholic problem, it's also a Protestant problem and a deeply human one. Our investigations show that many churches and ministries have not always done a good job protecting and empowering the victims. As cries of Me Too reverberate across the nation, so too have stories of church too in which men and women within evangelical churches voice their own tales of long-suppressed guilt, shame, and anguish. They say their trauma isn't just from the violating act itself. Trauma fested when trusted church authorities failed to believe or protect them, failed to report the crime's legal authorities, failed to change the institutional culture that enables and minimizes the severity of sexual abuse. Yet because this issue has become so public, more and more churches are acknowledging the existence and severity of sexual abuse within their communities, as shown in many cases mentioned above. More churches are asking for help to help the, the vulnerable, so this could be a wake-up call for the Protestant world. Meanwhile, Brenda will be the woman who accused writer Dennis Tinsley of sexually assaulting her in 1983. Some of these workers of sexual abuse a part of them died, and some of them are still waiting for the day they can rise like Phone, 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 phoenixes. Okay, some of them are still waiting for the day they can rise like phoenixes out of phoenixes out of the ashes. I'm never gonna be the same. None of these victims will be the same. We just have to let it go with a weary sigh. Um, in reaction to the recent papal announcement, sex abuse in the Catholic Church columnist Rod Dreher wrote on Twitter, "Nice words from Pope Francis, but after all this time and all these empty promises from the." Episcopate, what counts now are deeds. In the year of our Lord 2018, that's what counts for us in church as well, Sophia Um Here are my thoughts. We should stop all religious cults all religious cult practices, all religious cult beliefs, we should stop the shaming, blaming, and gaming of victims. We should stop failing to report crimes to law enforcement and do it immediately. Independent investigations with the help of organizations like Grace and just law enforcement leading it, those things should happen. Um, we should kick out people who are criminals. 
and all those who help the criminals commit their crimes should be kicked out as well. All of them should be prosecuted and all of them should serve lengthy imprisonment sentences and all their credentials and all their credentials should be permanently revoked. They should be disbarred if they are practicing law. If you have law enforcement removed and want to help the criminals out, they should have their uh, credentials permanently revoked and they should serve lengthy prison sentences themselves. Um, congregations should not be so into we have to keep the pastor that they get mad at the truth tellers for telling the truth. Um, the abuser profiling should stop. The hypocrisy should stop. And in these churches, we have to help prosecute these brutal vipers, these snakes, these blind fools, these blind gods, these serpents, these foxes like Herod, these hypocrites, these crooks, these thieves, these criminals, these assaulters, these violent offenders, these molesters, these pedophiles, these perverts, these rapists, These bullies, these devils, these antichrists. These demons, these evil spirits, these children of Satan. Looking good on the outside, filthy on the inside, folks. These greedy and self-indulgent monsters. And all these types of people should be prosecuted, whether in the congregation, whether in the choir loft, whether in the pulpit, whether in leadership, whether in ministry. I don't care if they're donors. I don't care if they're other churches. Prosecute all these motherfuckers. You have Satan masquerading as an angel of light. But you got a lot of churches who are cool with that. Which is fucked up in and of itself. And then you have adults who see shit, but don't do shit about the shit that they see. Which that is also fucked up in and of itself, too. Mm. 
These are more reasons why I left the church, Christianity, and religion. I'm, a, I'm just going to talk about those things. Then this will be my last religion episode for quite a while. Because I must move forward. I don't want to beat a dead horse from that. Alright, here we go. Who is Jesus? A one-minute irreligious read. Jonathan McCallum, February 2016. Jesus. Jesus is the guy asking questions about us all, unveiling to us our own answers. He's the one enjoying good food and sipping wine at the party. Is a challenge to those who thought they knew about religion, inviting the preachers in the process over a drop of La Rioja and fish over a fire. Rioja and fish over a fire. Jesus spoke about a kingdom of heaven, a kingdom where the wasteful guy with the jealous big brother and the crazy forgiving father are just as welcome as the Pharisee who wants a word with him under the cover of night. His kingdom is not fair. His kingdom is upside down. Highest places go to the lowliest and the lowest positions to the high and mighty. Even seems like he loves the addict, the adulterer, and the Sunday morning apathy more than those who are quote-unquote only Eric. Many did not get him. Many still don't because he still mingles most of the people who don't get caught in the social circles of religion. Maybe the religious have become like a moody son staying outside the party. Who is Jesus? The kingdom the king of the kingdom for the gentle-hearted meek, for those who have a lot to mourn, for the long to laugh, for the peacemaker, before the war lover, for revenge seeker, for pure in heart. It's for those with the purity of a prostitute, pouring out her heart, the precious oils on his dusty feet. It's for anyone who doesn't let the world or its religion get in the way of a king on a short, slow, flowing donkey, and following him into his kingdom is the pursuit of a lifetime. That is the same Jesus that I... Uh, revere. All right, so wow. So let me get to this spirituality adventures. In 2019, I found myself in a crisis of faith and I needed some community support for my own sanity and sobriety. In addition to attending church services, I decided to connect with a few recovery groups in Kansas City for the support I needed. Day after that, I sat in groups of people listening and tell their stories and talk about their struggles. I've listened to drunks and addicts and prostitutes and atheists and rabbis and pantheists and Buddhists and doctors and prisoners and homeless and LGBT plus people. By listening to personal stories, I realized that everybody's spiritual has been inspired by every type of person to wrestle with dignity, the issues and questions of life. I have found courage and hope in the strangest places. Spirituality is vital to recovery. The truth can be challenging to the atheist, the agnostic or the religious person who's angry at God. In 2019, as I was struggling with my own faith, I developed some content for just such a group of people. 
About 50% of the people need to recover. Atheists or agnostic who can't tolerate religion. The course I developed was on spirituality and recovery. I have taught the Bible and focused on Jesus for over 40 years. The challenge of this course was to teach spirituality without Jesus so the Bible is my foundational text. It was a challenge, but the one that I enjoyed. I feel like I learned as I prepared. Most teachers learn more about most teachers learn more than their students. I discovered that regardless of a person's religious orientation or lack thereof, there's some universally recognized strategies for nurturing spirituality. So first, what is spirituality and is it different from religion? If you look up these words in the dictionary, you'll find that they overlap. Religion means a reference for and belief in a god or gods. And since all the great traditions of faith would be a religion like Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Christianity. Religion could be used in a positive sense as representing devotion to God slash gods and compassion for others. A passage in the New Testament says that true religion is caring for the widow and orphan, James chapter 1, verse 27. Spirituality means a concern for the human spirit or soul as opposed to material or physical things. It speaks of a journey to connect with the infinite, a higher, a higher power, or something beyond. And it involves connection with self, others, ultimate reality, and the values that arise out of this pursuit. I just want to clarify something. I would say students learn more than their teachers. Most students do. I actually want to correct them on that. Um, in popular American culture, quote-unquote religion has taken on a primary negative connotation and spirituality. Quote-unquote has taken on a largely positive connotation. This is true in the recovery community and the culture at large. I've asked the question in many group settings. What is the difference between religion and spirituality? Answers vary, but a pattern emerges. Religion is depicted as an organized religion, dogmatic belief system which has injured and harmed people. In some cases, the offense comes from a rigid emphasis on rules over against loving relationships. In many cases, religion is seen as an oppressive force of violence, murder, hatred, exclusion, conformity, uniformity, tribalism, rejection, condemnation, threats, mean mugging, insults, and unkindness. Every major religion has failed to live up to its best values at various times in history. Those have individuals to represent them. Spirituality, on the other hand, is seen as a personal or communal pursuit of ultimate meaning and purpose. It subscribes to an orientation of life which affirms the deep longings of the heart for love, beauty, goodness, meaning, purpose, and connection with something greater than self. The fastest growing demographic and the rapidly changing spiritual landscape of America is quote unquote spiritual but not religious. Most people around the world embrace spirituality. Open, curious, loving discussions with people about spirituality is a window to the soul. Most people love to talk about spirituality in a loving, non-judgmental context. What's interesting is that the topic of Jesus invariably comes up without forcing it. Jesus is known and recognized as a spiritual teacher around the world as are Moses, Buddha, and Muhammad. These four spiritual teachers have influenced the spiritual and religious landscape of the world in which we live. Spirituality is the name of music for I'm doing to enter into this space in our culture through online platforms. Spirituality adventures is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality. Um, I'll be interviewing people on various topics like recovery, spirituality, and health and spirituality. I will be asking people from all walks of life questions related to any given topic. I'll be listening intently to the stories people tell, and I'll tell some of my own stories. Um, I've been a follower of Jesus since my late teenage years, he says. I would say that I've been a follower of Jesus since the age of five. 
I'm certain if Jesus were walking around today, he'd be hanging out with spiritual but not religious people like myself. I agree with that. He would listen and ask great questions or through the gospels with the folks and the questions Jesus asked. I agree with that. Jesus would also tell many spiritual stories, parables. I agree. He would hang out with people of high and low reputation. I would say the low reputation the most. And his heart would bend towards the most vulnerable and marginalized among us regardless of their beliefs or lifestyles. I agree. I encourage you to join, I encourage you to join me on this spiritual adventure. I'm truly excited about the journey. Those who walk with me, stay in touch. Thanks for your support. Shalom. I agree. I absolutely agree. He spoke my thoughts. Okay. I'm going to put this in my own words. This is by Valerie Tarico, published November 17, 2014, Six reasons religion may do more harm than good. It's hard to argue with some of these. Uh, alternate. Most British people think religion causes more harm than good, according to a survey commissioned by the Huffington Post. Surprisingly, even among those who describe themselves quote, very religious, 20% say that religion is harmful to society. But for that, we could probably thank the internet, which broadcasts everything from ISIS beheadings to stories about Catholic hospitals denying care to miscarrying women to lists of wild and weird religious beliefs to articles about psychological harms from Bible-believing Christianity. In 2010, sociologist Phil Zuckerman published Society Without God, What the Least Religious Nations Can Tell Us About Contentment. Zuckerman lined up evidence that the least religious societies also tend to be the most peaceful, prosperous, and equitable with public policies to help people flourish while decreasing both desperation and economic gluttony. We can debate whether prosperity and peace lead people to be less religious or vice versa. Indeed, evidence supports to be that religion thrives on existential anxiety, but even if but even if this is the case, there's good reason to suspect that the connection between religion and, mal and malfunctioning societies goes both ways. There are six ways religions make peaceful prosperity harder to achieve. One, religion promotes tribalism. Infidel, heathen, heretic, religion divides insiders from outsiders. Rather than assuming good intentions, adherents often are taught to treat outsiders with suspicion. Be ye not unequally yoked with unbelievers, says the Christian Bible. They wish that you disbelieve as they disbelieve, and then you would be equal. Therefore, take not to yourselves friends of them, says the Quran. Surah chapter 4, verse 91. At best, teachings like these discourage even forbid the kinds of friendship and intermarriage to help clans and tribes become part of a larger whole. At worst, outsiders are seen as enemies of God and goodness potential agents of Satan lacking in morality not to be trusted. Believers might huddle together anticipating martyrdom. When simmering tensions erupt, societies fractured along sectarian fault lines. Two, religion anchors believers to the Iron Age. Concubines, magical incantations, chosen people stonings. The Iron Age was a time of rampant superstition, ignorance, inequality, racism, misogyny, and violence. Slavery had God's sanction. Women and children were literally possessions of men. Warlords practiced scorched earth warfare. 
desperate people sacrifice animals, children, agricultural products, and enemy soldiers as burnt offerings intended to appease dangerous gods. Yes, human sacrifice is very popular back then. Sacred texts in the Bible, Quran, and Quran all preserve and protect fragments of Iron Age culture, putting a God's name and endorsement on some of the very worst human impulses. Any believer looking to excuse their own temper, sense of superiority, warmongering, bigotry, or planetary destruction can find validations in writings that claim to be authored by God. Today, humanity's moral consciousness is evolving, grounded in an ev- e- ever deeper and broader understanding of the golden rule. But many conservative believers can't move forward. They are anchored to the Iron Age. This pits them against change in a never-ending battle that consumes public energy and slows creative problem-solving. Religion makes a virtue out of faith. When I say faith, I'm talking about fear-based faith, okay? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. So seeing children in Sunday schools across America, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Pastors tell believers who have been shaken by horrors like brain cancer or tsunami, faith is a virtue. As science eats away at territory once held by religion, traditional religious beliefs require greater and greater mental defenses against threatening information. To stay strong, religion trains believers to practice self-deception, shut out contradictory evidence, and trust authorities rather than their own capacity to think. This approach seeps into other parts of life. Government in particular becomes a fight between competing ideologies rather than a quest to figure out practical evidence-based solutions that promote well-being. Four, religion diverts generous impulses and good intentions. Feeling sad about Haiti? Give to our megachurch. Crass financial appeals during times of crisis thankfully not the norm, but religion does routinely redirect generosity in order to perpetuate religion itself. Generous people are encouraged to give so that hers to promote the church itself rather than the general welfare. Each year, each year, thousands of missionaries throw themselves into the hard work of saving souls rather than saving lives or saving our planetary life support system. Their work tax-free gobbles up financial and human capital. Besides exploiting positive moral energy like kindness or generosity, religion often redirects moral disgust and indignation, attaching these emotions to arbitrary religious rules rather than questions of real harm. Orthodox Jews spend money on wigs for women and double dishwashers. Evangelical parents forced to choose between righteousness and love kick queer teens out onto the street. Catholic bishops impose righteous rules on operating ones. Five. Religion teaches helplessness. what will be will be let go and let God we've all heard these phrases but sometimes we don't recognize the deep relationship between religiosity and resignation and the most conservative sects of Judaism Christianity and Islam women are seen as more virtuous if they let God manage their family planning when I say helplessness I'm talking about learned helplessness okay 
dropped power from the parents of their church to the will of God rather than bad decision or bad system. Believers wait for problems to, believers wait for God to solve problems they could solve themselves. This attitude harms society at large as well as individuals. When today's largest religions came into existence, ordinary people had little power to change social structures either through technological innovation or advocacy. Living well and doing good were largely personal matters. With, when this mentality persists, religion inspires personal piety without social responsibility. Structural problems can be ignored as long as the believer is kind to friends and family and generous to the tribal community of believers. Six, religions seek power. Think corporate personhood. Religions are man-made institutions just like for-profit corporations are. Like any corporation to survive and grow, religion must find a way to build power and wealth and compete for market share. Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, any large enduring religion, any large enduring religious institution is as expert at this as Coca-Cola or Chevron. And just like for-profit behemoths, they are willing to wield their power and wealth in the service of self-perpetuation, even if it harms society at large. In fact, unbeknownst to religious practitioners, harming society may actually be part of religion's survival strategy. In the, words of, in the words of sociologist Phil Zuckerman and researcher Gregory Paul, not a single advanced democracy that enjoys benign, progressive socioeconomic conditions pertains to high level of popular religiosity. When people feel prosperous and secure, the hold of religion weakens. I agree, religion does more harm than good. It's yeah. Um, one of the big. I, I'm gonna just read a couple of things, but then I'm gonna conclude because there's nothing else I can say after. This is MicahJMurray.com. One of the biggest reasons I left organized church was the fact that we as a church were simply maintaining our club slash clubhouse. We tithe to pay the cost to operate the organization. I guess since there are no windows, orphans or hundred people around, we're able to justify keeping it all in house. I am tired of having tithe what I believe in a culture that prides itself on being welcome and accepting and real. When the tagline on so many churches is come as you are, but they don't really mean it, I'm done. While I haven't cut off my relationship with the church, I keep her at arm's length and don't trust her. We dance, but it's a tango and I got my eye on the door. Because an institution owes power and power has killed the gospel for me once too often. I don't belong and I know it all too well. I feel like my welcome in a church is conditional and dependent on my best behavior. Mm. My lifetime of church experience drove me away from Jesus in the wilderness alone. I really experienced him. Religion was found in the church, all man-made junk in the middle of Jesus. I wanted Jesus and found. I was so sick and tired of the agenda-driven services. It was never about relationship. It was about numbers. I was tired of being called too spiritual, not spiritual enough. I was tired of the numerous amounts of sermons about why I shouldn't have sex before marriage as a young adult. I heard more about sex than I did about Jesus. 
I left the church because I was quote unquote welcome, but I wasn't received. I attended my church for five years, so people would ask me if Sunday was my first day. No, I helped, served, and volunteered in various different ways. I was tired of the masks, the facades, and the show. All I wanted, all I wished for, was to be a part of a community of people to be able to give what I had been given and receive what I lacked. I left the church because the church broke my heart. But I'm realizing real church is the only thing that will help bring healing to this brokenness. Even though I haven't technically left, I clocked out emotionally just through the movements with the other attenders. I am there to worship my God, but all the blood, sweat, tears I gave have long been forgotten by those whom I trust the most. I even trusted them with my salvation. Now they're just faces. Not a single one was there for me and my son when we needed them. I'm already saved, so why bother with me now? They're too busy saving others and spending their time with the lost. I shared that vision. Now it all seems to be a masquerade. Every Sunday, I know it's just showtime. Okay, camera two, go wide, camera one. Get me a close-up of the lead singer, camera two. Give me a slow push towards the stage. In five, four, three, two, one, it's showtime. I was born and raised in the church, baptized, confirmed, married in it, had our kids baptized and confirmed in it. I practically lived, breathed, breathed, ate, and slept church, and our pastor sexually harassed me. My husband and I had to go through so many hoops, even with hard proof to have anything done, and it revealed an ugly, ugly underbelly at the highest leadership levels. We left that denomination for another, and within a half year, that pastor resigned due to clergy and sexual misconduct. Wagons were circled. The truth was silenced. The victim who had hard proof of the abuse and her family was slandered and cast out. Many sided with the poor, passive, abuse therapy. It's damn near impossible for me to trust a faith leader. I'll read this last one. The Bible and God were twisted into something ugly and frightening. Most of the time, people just wanted to step on us to grind their Christian truth into us with their heel. I was so disgusted by the hate radiating from Christians from churches that made me sick and if that's what being Christian was, what God was. I wanted nothing, absolutely nothing to do with it. I left because I could no longer hear the voice of the true shepherd among all the bleeding sheep. They were quick to remind me that walking away from a relationship was that be quite walking away from a shepherd for good. And leaving, I was labeled rebellious, a heretic, discordant, immature, and emotional. I thought I would never hear the shepherd's voice again. What would he want to do with me? I became the wounded lamb who wandered from the 99. Much to my surprise, the shepherd has pursued me. I'm far from returning to the fall, but in the meantime, I'm getting to know the heart of the true shepherd. Those are stories of why many people left the church. And I'll read some. Um, I, um, okay. There's something that I will read.
you know, I'm going to tell you my African spirituality. I'll read a few proverbs to you. A chattering bird feels no rest. A canoe does not know who the leader is when it turns over, everyone gets wet. A camel does not tease another camel about its humps. A calf doesn't laugh at a hornless cow. And lastly, a broken clay pot or plate does not become whole again. So, I do have African spirituality, meaning I abide by my ancestors and my grandma Clara. And I am in communion 24-7 with them everywhere I go in terms of talking and in terms of them just being near me in my heart and my spirit. So I do practice African spirituality. Uh, and I include my ancestors and grandma into all the decisions I make. And I run it by them in my soul. So that's how I operate with that. Um, I'm about to wrap up pretty soon, but I'm, I like to make it simple. Basically, spirituality is based only on love and not fear. Religion tells you the truth. Spirituality lets you discover it. Let you, spirituality lets you discover it. Religion separates. Spirituality unites. The difference between karma and punishment. You know, threat of hell, karma, that kind of thing. Walk your own path. There are no rules to spirituality. Um, so that's that. Um... Why do so many pastors administer the facts with shocking? I don't want to read all of it. I'll, I'll just say this. Um, many pastors are overworked. Almost 70% of pastors feel grossly underpaid. Most pastors feel unprepared. Many pastors struggle with depression and uh, discouragement. Um, many pastors are lonely. Speaking of families, most pastor families are negatively impacted. Half of the 1,700 so pastors who leave the ministry each month have another way to make a living. Um, 50% of the ministers start out with not, 50% of the ministers starting out will not last five years. One out of every 10 ministers will actually retire as a minister in some form. 4,000 churches begin each year while 7,000 churches close. 70% do not have someone they consider a close friend. 40% report there is conflict in the first year at least once a month. 80% believe pastoral ministry has negative effects to their families. 80% spouses or the pastors of work. They're left out underappreciated by church members. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression. 50% of pastors feel so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but have another way of making a living. Wait, this is huge. Let's pause here for a moment. Uh, 90% feel they are inadequately trained to cope with the ministry's demands. 90% of the pastors said the ministry is completely different than what they thought it would be like before they entered the ministry. 90% of the pastors report working between 55 to 75 hours per week and 50% feel unable to meet the demands of the job. Okay, here's the thing. Do we, have we ever critically thought about whether invisible beings exist or not? Have we ever critically thought about whether an audible voice exists or not? Have we ever critically thought about whether intangible entities exist or not? Have we ever critically thought about whether undetectable forces exist or not? And we do, did we ever critically think, do we ever critically think about 
and events and judgments that happens after we die. Have we ever critically thought about those things? I know I have. Um, there's one thing that I want to say. So there's a strong link between religion and sex offenders. The religious relation among adult sex offenders. Though sex offenders who reported regular church attendance of belief in supernatural punishment and religion reported in their daily lives that more known victims, younger victims, are more convicted for sex offenses than the sex offenders who reported irregular or no church attendance and no or less intense allegiance to religious beliefs and practices. So then you have the patriarchal systems. Um, Patriarchal system in which a single individual is considered an ultimate unquestioned authority always creates a power imbalance and is often abused. A patriarchal system is fundamental to religion. The church is responsible for, for perpetuating mechanisms that exploit native minorities and women. That's bad. Sexually abused children realize early that their credibility is nothing compared to their aggressors. It doesn't matter if the parent is an alcoholic, chronically unemployed, or prone to violence in our society, an adult is almost always more believable than a child. If the parent has attained a certain measure of success in life, the credibility gap becomes opacity. Susan Ford, PhD, with Craig Funk, toxic parents overcoming their hurtful legacy and reclaiming their life. Part of the reason powerless people have no credibility, quote, quote in our society is because of the influence of religion. You want to remove, quote, unquote, old white men from positions of power, it's important to disrupt the pillars that support them. Religion is indisputably among these. Yeah, more. Yeah, religion is truly harmful. I'm talking about the horrible kind, not the good kind. I say that. Um, so basically, you have it's really simple. I don't need an article for uh, about the city on this one. Basically, we're talking about you know respecting. You know the first lady but maybe you shouldn't call her that because it can get hierarchical and patriarchal well first ladies go through a lot they gotta counsel people especially when be there for the kids in the church i have a hard time spending my time in church because the kids are afraid they get insulted in front of judge for what they wear what they look like Everything about their lives is negatively scrutinized by members, by people. You know, majority of the people love the first lady. You know, she still gets her pain. Then some of them get cheated on, you know, members or women compete with the first lady to get the sexual or romantic affection to pass the, the cat fights, the being dogged out. Being told to stay with an adulterous and abusive husband, you know. First, let us go through a lot of shit, a lot of shit, and then basically, here's the thing: 
I want to finish with this article. Now, this article is really worth me concluding with. So here we go. Churchplants.com. Dear church, here's why people are really leaving the church. A hard, honest look at why people are really leaving the church. Want to know why people are leaving the church? Be on the other side of the Exodus things, don't it? I see the panic on your face, church. I know the internal terror. As you see the, as you see the statistics and hear the stories and scan the exit polls, I see definitely scrambling to do damage, damage control for defense for defense sitters and manufacture passion from a shrinking base when I want to help you. You may think you know why people leave me, but I'm not sure you do. You think it's because quote unquote the culture is so lost, so perverse, so beyond help they're all walking away. You believe that they turn a deaf ear to the voice of God chasing money, sex, and material material things. You think that the gays and the Muslims and atheists and the pop stars are so screwed up, fucked up in the reality of the world that everyone is abandoning faith in droves. But those aren't the reasons people are leaving the church. They aren't the problem, church. You are the problem. Let me elaborate in five ways. One, your Sunday productions have worn thin. The stage and the lights and the bands and the video screens have all just become white noise because really seeking to encounter God. Their ear and eye candy for an hour, but they have so little relevance in people's daily lives that more and more of them are taking past. Yeah, the songs are cool and the show is great, but ultimately Sunday morning isn't really making a difference on Sunday, on Tuesday afternoons or Thursday evenings. Some people say the show is bad and the songs are uncool. Um, but ultimately Sunday morning isn't really making a difference on Tuesday afternoon or, th- or Thursday evening when people are wrestling with the awkward, messy, shitty, painful shit stuff in the trenches of life, the places where rock shows don't help. We can be entertained anywhere. Until you give us something more than a Christian theme performance piece, something that allows us space and breathe and breathe and breath and conversation relationship, many of us are going to sleep in and stay away. And that, and that includes me. Two, you speak in a foreign tongue church, you talk and talk and talk, but you're doing so using a dead language. You're holding on to dusty words that have no resonance in people's ears, not realizing that just saying those words louder is the answer. All the religious buzzwords that used to work 20 years ago no longer do. The spiritualized inside and language may give you some comfort in an outside world that is changing, but that stuff, that shit's just lazy religious shorthand, and it keeps regular people at a distance. They need you to speak in a language that they can understand. There's a message there's what they're worth sharing, but it's hard to hear above your verbal pyrotechnics. People don't need to be dazzled with big churchy words and about eschatological frameworks and theological systems. Talk to them plainly about love and joy and forgiveness and death and peace and God that we all need. Keep up your church speaking. You'll be talking to an empty room soon. Three, your vision can't see past your building. The coffee bar, the crush, the cup, the cushy couches, the high-tech lights, the funky children's wearing the uber cool teen center, all top-notch and cost. In fact, most of your time, money, energy seems to be about learning people to where you are instead of reaching people where they already are. Rather than simply stepping out to the neighbors around you and partnering with the amazing things already happening and the beautiful stuff God is already doing, you seem content to franchise out your particular brand of Jesus stuff and wait for the sinful world to be and wait for the sinful world to beat down your door. Your greatest mission is just a few miles or a few feet off your campus. You don't even realize it. You want to reach the people you're missing? Leave the building. Or you choose lousy battles. You know you like to fight church. That's obvious. When you want to, you can go to war with the best of The problem is your battles are too darn small. Too damn small. Fast food protests, copy store outrage, and duck call reality TV show campaigns and manufacture some urgency and Twitter activity on the inside of the foot. And 
fast food protests, probably store outrage and gut calling reality TV show campaign saying manufacturers some urgency and Twitter activity on the inside for the already convinced with their paper tigers to people out here with bloody boots on the ground. Every day we see a world suffocated by poverty, racism, and violence, and victory, and hunger. In the face of that stuff, that shit, you get awfully frighteningly quiet. We wish you were as courageous in those fights because then we feel like coming alongside you. Then we feel like going to war with you. Church, we need you to stop being warmongers with the trivial and pacifist in the face of the terrible. Five, your love doesn't look like love. Love seems to be a pretty big deal to you, but we're not getting that when the rubber meets the road. In fact, more and more, your brand of love seems incredibly selective and decidedly narrow. They're turning out all the spiritual riffraff, which sadly includes far too many of us. It feels like a big bait-and-switch sucker deal by advertising a come-as-you-are party, but letting us know once we're in the door that we really can't come as we are. We see Jesus in the Bible hung up with low lives and prostitutes and outcasts love them right there. But that doesn't seem to be your cup of tea. Church can love us if we don't check all the doctrinal boxes and don't have theology and don't have our theology all figured out. I, it doesn't seem so. Can you love? Can you love us if we cuss and drink and get tattoos and God forbid vote Democrat? We're doubtful. Can you love us if we're not sure how we define love and marriage and heaven and hell? It sure doesn't feel that way. From what we know about Jesus, we think he looks like love. The important thing is he don't look much like him. That's part of the reason people are leaving the church. These words might get you really, really angry. Piss the fuck off. I'm just adding my two cents to it. And you may want to jump in a knee-jerk move to defend yourself or attack these positions line by line, but we hope that you won't. I'm sorry, the word jerk means that other assholes in these church buildings. I just have to say it. That's how my mind works. Okay. We hope that you'll just sit in stillness with these words for a while because whether you believe they're right or wrong, they're real to us, and that's the whole point. We're the ones walking away. We want to matter to you. We want you to hear us before you debate us. Show us that you're loving and God are real. Church, give us a reason to stay. It's not you, it's me. That's what you seem to be saying, church. I try to share my heart with you. The heart of being thousands, thousands of people like me who are walking away to let you know of the damage you're doing and the painful legacy you're leaving. And apparently, you're not the problem, which, of course, is still a problem. I replace my frustration. I relate my frustration with the insider religious rhetoric and responded by cutting and pasting random scripture sound bites about the bride of Christ quotations and blood of the land quotations system that the real issue is simply not biblical ignorance. Suggesting that you need to repent and get a good concordance, whatever that is. I let you know how judged and ridiculed I feel when I'm with you, how much like a hopeless feeling outcut I feel in the preparation often inward judgmental communities to tell me how lost I am, how hopeless I am to fuck off in love with my sin. I must be to leave in mind that I never really belonged with you anyway. In the face of every complaint, every grievance, we've made it clear that the real issue is that I'm either sinful, heretical, immoral, foolish, unenlightened, selfish, consumist, or ignorant. Maybe you're right, church, maybe I have a problem. Maybe it's me, but me is all I'm capable of being right now, and that's where I'm really hoping you would meet me. It's here in my flawed, screwed up, fucked up, wounded, shell shocked, down, delusion, meanness, and I've been waiting for you to step in with this whole supposedly relentless, audacious love of Jesus thing I hear so much about and make it real. Church, I know how much you despise your tolerance for right now and need you to tolerate me. To tolerate those of us who, for all sorts of reasons, you may feel unjustified or struggling to stay. 
It's so weird if they didn't have nothing more than a religious agenda and arguments to win a point to make a cause to defend a soldier to save. We want you to be more than a notch in your salvation belt and other numbers to pad your Twitter post and end of year stat sheets. We need you to be more than altar call props who are applauding high fives down the aisle and forgotten once the song ends. We've been praying for you to stop evangelizing us and preaching at us and fighting us to judge us and send diagnosing us long enough to send me long enough to simply hear us even if we are the problem. Even if we are the woman at the altar of the doubting follower or the rebellious prodigal or the demon little young man who can't be anything else right now in this moment. This moment in the church big enough and tough enough and ugly enough and not just for us as we might one day be then but for us as we are now. We still believe that God is big enough and tough enough and loving enough even if we won't be and that's why even if we do walk away it doesn't mean we're walking away from faith because that faith right now seems more reachable elsewhere. I know you are that you're doing all these things and saying all these things special love and care for us. Love from the shoes of Penny and we need to know that it feels less like love and care more like space and silence. If someone is frustrated telling that they're wrong to be frustrated it's well pretty freaking fucking frustrating. Not only breach distance, if someone says that their heart is hurting, they don't want to hit it, they're not right to be hurt. It's a conversation starter. If someone tells you they're starving for compassion, relationship, and authenticity, the last thing they need to be, the last thing they need is to be corrected for that hunger. It's a kick in the rear, the ass, on the way out the door. So yes, church, even if you're right, even if we're totally wrong, even if we're all petty and self-centered, hypocritical, and critical, I'll say it's sinful in quotations, we're still the ones searching for a place where we can be known and belong, a place where it feels like God lives and we're the ones who can show it to us. Even if the problem is me, it's me who you're supposed to be reaching, church. So for the love of God, reach already. This is by John Pavlovich. He's a pastor by Flaubert from Wake Forest, North Carolina. An 18-year-old veteran of local church ministry currently writes a blog called Stuff That Needs to Be Said and in January launched an online Christian community called The Cable. Yep. So those are all the reasons why I left church, religion, and Christianity. But I never left Christ's whiteness. I never left the spirit of Jesus. And I never left the concept of a God who has no problems not Christians and non conservative theology type of people people like myself so thank you for listening to all the reasons why I left religion church and Christianity and thank you for listening to all the reasons why I'm Christ like I fight the spirit of Jesus and that I have the concept of a God that has no problems with non-Christians, non-conservative theology people, people like myself. So thank you very much.